Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. This episode talks in a little bit of detail about depression and suicidal thoughts. So at the end of the show, we'll give some resources in case you or someone you love needs a little support. If you want to understand the sheer desperation some Angelinos feel when it comes to housing these days, just watch this video from a few weeks back. It shows Congresswoman Maxine Waters she's surrounded by frustrated constituents that all turned up at this event in downtown L.A. They thought they could get these rare vouchers for permanent subsidized housing, Section 8 vouchers. But the vouchers weren't actually available. There are no more applications. The congresswoman tells the crowd, listen, there's been a misunderstanding. I want everybody to go home. And I want We don't got no home. That's why we're here. You feel for everyone yeah. in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. It's like, where am I going to? That's why I'm here. I asked Ethan Ward to talk through this tape with me. Ethan reports on homelessness for KPCC, the public radio station in Los Angeles. Like everything else that gets sent around the internet, this video got warped to fit the worldview of whoever forwarded it along. At one point, the congresswoman gets defensive when a constituent presses her for help. She says there is no one else in Washington who works for their people any effing harder than I do. Only she uses the whole F-bomb. Some saw this as unprofessional. Ethan says that kind of frustration is almost a natural response to how confusing the situation is for unhoused people in Los Angeles. And as someone who literally just wrote a story about Section 8 and how convoluted the process is, I kind of knew there was just no way that the people were going to be out there handing out vouchers like that. That's just not generally the way that the system works or the way that the vouchers are handed out. So I actually felt bad for her. I look at a video like that and I sort of wonder if Los Angeles is really at a boiling point when it comes to its homelessness crisis. Yeah, it is. And I, I'm out on the streets a lot talking to people who are unhoused. I go to encampments regularly. People are at their wits end. And I think that like at the last 2020 count, there were like roughly 66,000 people who were experiencing homelessness. And the fact of the matter is there's just nowhere for people to go. There's one more thing I should tell you about Ethan, which is the reason he understands this story so well is that he's lived it. Before becoming a reporter, he was unhoused himself. He looks at all these frustrated people confronting their congresswoman, and he knows how hard it is to break out of the cycle they're in. He knows that as a reporter, but he also knows it as a human. 
even if they were able to get one of those vouchers, then they have to start the process of finding a landlord who would even accept it because there are limitations to even where you can use those vouchers based on square footage, how many bedrooms there are, and then they have a, a cap for the amount of rent that you can cover with that. And unfortunately, there aren't even a lot of places in LA anymore that meet those requirements because rent is so high. I can hear in your voice, like, you have a frustration here. Yeah. And- <laughs> <laughs> Is it that obvious? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very interested in this. It's not just like a job for me. It's, you know, people's lives that we're talking about. And as someone that has experienced this and been on the other side of this, it really does, you know, feel personal to me a lot of times to make sure that I'm not just getting, you know, non-answers. Today on the show, how Ethan Ward went from living in his car to reporting on homelessness and why he doesn't want you to think he's pulled himself up by his bootstraps. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You've said when you've talked about your own experience with being unhoused that you fell into homelessness. Can you explain how it happened? Oh, Mary. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, It really, honestly, there was a lot of things that were going on. So when I initially moved to Los Angeles, I grew up on the East Coast and D.C. and the Maryland um, suburb of D.C. of Upper Marlboro. And when I was growing up, I ended up, you know, leaving D.C. and I had a really kind of tough childhood. And I moved to L.A. thinking like, I'm going to be an actor. And I was like so dead set on that. I was like, this is going to happen and everything will work out. And It's like the American dream. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I thought that that was kind of like my thing. And I got here and I tried to do it for like maybe four years. And I quickly realized that like, this is not for me. Like, I don't think I have the passion to do what actors do. But I ended up falling into a really, really deep depression over the whole ordeal because I didn't have a plan after that. And so it was like dealing with depression. And I also was not able to find work, you know, in LA consistently the way that I wanted to, that was able to keep up with the rising cost of housing. So for example, when I moved into my apartment, um, one of the, the last apartment I lived in before I became unhoused, I moved into that apartment and I think my rent was like $1,400. Five years later, when I was leaving that apartment and about to start the process of living in my car, my rent was like 1950 hmm. And my wages certainly had not kept up with that, you know, growing cost of rent. And so then it just turned into like, okay, at this point, I had decided to go back to school and get my degree because I still wanted to work in entertainment and journalism. And I thought like, at this point, I'm like 34 years old and I'm like, okay, I have finite amount of resources. I cannot afford to stay in this apartment. Even if I had a roommate, 
I think that the smartest play for me is just to live in my car. And at the time I thought like, oh, well, how bad could it be? You know, I like literally Google, like, how do I live in my car? And <laughs> I thought it was just be, like Google know? camping. You know, Google had like a lot of resources, basically like how to like charge your stuff, the best way to refrigerate your food and things like that. But what it did not prepare me for was as someone who was already struggling with depression, the mental health toll that it takes on you, and then the shame that came along with being unhoused, because I never told anyone. Can you tell me about the first night you made a decision to sleep in your car? I had left my apartment, like I had come to an agreement with the landlord to just leave the property. And <laughs> I actually didn't immediately go to sleep in my car because I was so scared. I ended up sneaking back into my old apartment for like almost a week because the door was unlocked. What were you scared of? I was just terrified. I think if you've never been unhoused before and you're like now faced with the thing, like I have to stay in my car overnight, it was really overwhelming for me. And I honestly just, I don't think I was like really prepared for that. But then one day I ended up going back to the apartment and the door was locked. And so then I had to, and then that was the first night that I rode around, like I had class the next day. And I remember at 8 a.m. and I remember riding around for like five hours, just driving around trying to find a park, a place where I can park my car to sleep. Because LA has like parking signs that are like, you can't be here overnight. You can't park here during this time. And I was terrified that like, I would be sleeping in my car and somehow I would wake up to my car being towed with me inside of it or something hmm. crazy like that. Or the police would be, you know, tapping at my window. And as a black guy in LA, you know, I definitely was not trying to have any interactions with police when it came to me being in my car, being in the wrong place. Um, so it was just really, really stressful. And to me at that time, it was like, okay, this is just what it is. And I just have to play the cards that have been dealt to me, but it was really, really, um, really, really hard. You know, like while you're dealing with like navigating sleeping in your car and all of the drama that comes along with that, trying to find places. I had to like figure out where I was going to shower, where I was going to wash my clothes. Um, where would I use the bathroom? Because I had like this big phobia of even using public restrooms up until that point. Where were you getting food? Did you have a whole setup for that too? No, I didn't do any of that. I literally would eat like maybe once a day because I didn't have access to a restroom. So like when I would go to sleep at night, I would have to stop eating after a certain point because I was terrified that once I was like locked into my parking spot and I found a safe spot to be, there was no way that I was going to be able to get up and use the bathroom until I was able to get to the gym in the morning when they open to take a shower and stuff to get ready for class. So the bathroom literally started to like run my life. Not having access to a bathroom kind of controlled a lot of like what I would do and what I would eat. And I even look at pictures of myself now from that year and I'm like, oh my God, I was so thin. Like I was so skinny and didn't even hmm. realize it because I really was just not eating. I know you were in community college. Mm -hmm. Did you have a plan to like get out of your car? Were you like, if I can do this for a year, something will change. Mary, literally that was the only thing that kept me going the entire year that I was in my car. I knew, I think subconsciously, that if I were able to transfer to a four-year university, I kind of like had a bet that like housing will probably come along with that offer of admission. If I'm just able to transfer to a four-year university, then I will be fine. 
Because I'll fill out the financial aid forms and... Exactly. And then they'll do all the thing where they put your aid package together. And normally that you would say, do you need on-campus housing or something along those lines? Um, obviously, that was not a guarantee. Remind you, I went back to school late. I'm a non-traditional student. So by the time I transferred and was getting ready for this, I was turning 36. I didn't know if I would get housing because in my mind, I'm like, they're not putting a 36 year old in like a dormitory with 18 year olds who just graduated from high school. That Like that doesn't make any sense. You'd be showing up like, hello, fellow kids. <laughs> yes. Hello, fellow kids. How do you do? Um, so in my mind, I just didn't know if that would even work out. But you and, were like, but it could in my happen. Mind, I just thought, so like, that's the plan. It could happen. But that's the plan. Like, I didn't know. And at this point, I think it was just like that hope, glimmer of hope that I would just be offered housing, that I would be okay. That kind of got me through. This plan worked. After a couple of years, Ethan was able to transfer to USC. And they did offer him housing. How long did it take for you to consider yourself no longer unhoused? Like, I just wonder how long you carry that identity with you. Uh, I have to say that I actually had survivor's guilt that I struggled with after I got into USC, after I finally moved. Um, I ended up selling the car that I was living in because I just was so traumatized by the entire thing. And I was just like, I just want to be clear of this memory and move on. But the first night that I slept in a bed after sleeping in my car for a year, I could not sleep. I literally was crying like the first night because I had left. I missed the car. Hmm. Oh, my God. I'm getting emotional. But yeah, I missed my car. I missed my car and I could not sleep. And it just was such an adjustment because even though you're like in a house and you're like, I'm grateful to be finally in a home again. It was also like I had like conditioned myself to live a certain way for an entire year. Um, so it was a really, really big adjustment. Did you have anyone you could talk to about that? I had journaled the entire year that I lived in my car. That was the person that I kind of talked to myself. It was like my notes app, my journals that I kept with me. Um, that was kind of how I expressed and dealt with a lot of the things that I was going through and processed a lot of my thoughts. And even now, when I read back over them, I'm like, I cannot, you were really in the sunken place <laughs> because... Mm. It's jarring to read your state of mind like at a time in your life when you have grown so much since then. Give me an example. There was at one point I had written in my journal where I was contemplating suicide. And I wrote, I, I wrote down like I was sitting in my car and I was just watching all these cars drive by and I just felt like this intense sense of like rage and jealousy. And I was just like you know, everyone's life seems to be going fine. I bet they're going home to their little perfect apartments or their perfect homes and their perfect families. And maybe I should just drive through a light. You know, I just maybe end it all. Yeah, it was bad. It was really, really bad. And my journal, like I said, was the only, I guess, thing that I really felt comfortable talking to. Um, and I'm glad that I did that because it, it really has helped a lot to have that perspective now when I see that I'm like, okay, and I'm back in my own place again, and I have a great job. And I'm like, it just reminds me that those things are temporary and they're transitory. And, you know, you eventually do kind of come out through the other side, which I'm really, really grateful for. Yeah. 
And now, obviously, you're a journalist, so you're speaking to people who may be in that place now. Yes, yes. And I, I feel so much empathy because I remember what it was like to have to fight every day to just keep that light switch turned on in my head that says, I care that I care. I care about my appearance. I care about going to take a shower. I care about showing up to class. I care about turning in this paper. Um, I care about these things because it is so easy to just be like, I don't care anymore. After the break, how Ethan's personal experiences paved the way for the journalism he does today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Ethan Ward wasn't always so sure that he was going to cover homelessness as a journalist. But when he transferred to USC, something changed. In his application essay, he'd written about living in his car. And then after he got in, the communications department got in touch, said, hey, would you feel comfortable talking a bit more about your story? We could do an article. And I'm like, absolutely not. I do not want everyone at this campus to know that I was <laughs> like unhoused and living in my car for a year. Absolutely not. But then I thought like, I should just do it. You know, what am I ashamed of? Why? I, I just didn't want to carry that shame. So I did it and the story comes out. And then I ended up finding out that the community college that I had just transferred from, they somehow read the story. And then they told me that they were actually opening up bathrooms and laundry facilities for students who were experiencing homelessness. Because oh when I gosh. was there, yes. And so I thought after, after that- After they heard like, your story? 
Exactly, because I had never told anyone. But when they told me that, I was like, oh, you know, maybe there was some good for me sharing that story because now students that will come after me will have it a little easier. Oh, you saw a way to make change. Yes. I was like, I'm not the only person that has experienced this. And I felt lucky that I had my car to sleep in. Um, A lot of people don't have that privilege. They are living in tents on the street. You know what I mean? And so me having the opportunity to, you know, report on homelessness, I'm really, really grateful for that because I do really, really try my best to make sure that I center the voices of unhoused people in my work and really try to convey to people who are reading and who don't know about it because they don't know people who are unhoused and they have their own lives and their own families and their own jobs. But it's like, if you stop to read one of my stories, I really want you to come away having learned something about unhoused people or the systems and the barriers and the structures that they're up against that they have to struggle with to even get access to housing. Yeah. There's just so many things that I don't think people really understand about that goes on behind the scenes of just being unhoused. There's just so much that you have to put up with and get through on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of people that I speak to, they are really just trying to get through their day. So even when I'm telling them, like, you can go to this particular agency or this particular department, it turns into, well, I can't leave my tent. I can't leave my belongings because someone will steal them. And so it really does turn into this thing where you're like trapped in like a vicious cycle of, As long as if I can just get through this day, then I will be fine. I really appreciate the sources you bring into your reporting. Like you talked to one advocate who had this great way of putting it. She said, housing means would your mama live there? (laughs) And I feel like a lot of the time when we're talking about how we help the unhoused, Mm -hmm. that's maybe not the first question at the top of people's minds Mm -hmm. they're thinking about how much it costs they're thinking about like how to keep it out of sight or whatever Mm -hmm. but that is a really important question that was melina abdullah she brought up a really 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 good point when she said that and it really kind of was like wow she believes that there is enough space in los angeles for people to have permanent supportive housing i think that Her point was that like the interest of business and developers always kind of like supersede the needs of, you know, unhoused people and putting their needs first, which is like we need to just give everyone access to housing. Um, And to the county and city's, you know, credit, they have started the process of like building that stuff, but it takes a long time to build these units. Yeah, you've actually, you published a story where you highlighted folks who were saying that Los Angeles should be treating its homelessness problem as a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering yes. how that framing would help. I think most people understand homelessness to be a humanitarian you know, issue. But I think when it comes to putting people into homes and actually getting help to people, the argument was that there should be a state of emergency declared because then that would eliminate all of the red tape that people have to currently go through to either build housing, to get access to housing. FEMA would be able to come in and pretty much put checks in people's hands so they can go find housing. It speeds things up. Exactly. And even the processes to build like housing, there's like city regulations, county regulations, state regulations, health regulations, environmental regulations. And so declaring that state of emergency would kind of eliminate all of that and really allow people to kind of really grasp the enormity um, of the situation. You obviously got out of your car. Mm hmm. 
I wonder if when you're talking to people on the streets, you ever try to give them advice or they ever ask you about your experience and how you transitioned from one place to the other and what you tell them? It does come up from time to time. I honestly try my best not to be like, oh my God, well, look at me, you know, I'm an example of, because I kind of hate that too. It's like, well, people say, well, you did it so other people can do it too. And it's like, sure, yeah, I did it. But I also, my circumstances were a little different as well. Like I was, you know, in college and I was, you know, transferring to a university that was able to provide me with, you know, housing. So I think for me, like, sure, yes, I did it, but I, I try my best not just to kind of focus on their issues and let them tell me what they need um, so I can be of service to them. It's interesting. It sounds like you know really well how your story could be used. And you don't want that to happen. Yeah, because I think it's it's I'm I'm grateful. Like, don't get me wrong. I am grateful that I was able to climb out of that. But I also wasn't struggling with like drug addiction. You know what I mean? That would have prevented me from maybe going to class and doing assignments and things like that. And so I never really liked people to use that as like, well, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps, so you can too. I feel like everyone's story and everyone's situation is unique and some people really need support. I always tell people, like, if you come from a family where you have like a great relationship with your parents and you have siblings and just a really strong family support system, you are very lucky because I personally believe that that is the exception, not the norm. So then it turns into you are at the mercy of the state or the government or whatever, you know, benefits are available to you. And I do personally feel those benefits should be there for people to help them on their path and help them along their path. And I think what a lot of unhoused people are experiencing now is that those systems that are supposed to be in place to help are really not working maybe as efficiently as they should to get them into housing. It's interesting when I was thinking about that Maxine Waters video. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how you have been so many of the people in that video. Like you've been the person who's like, I want a place to sleep. And like you've been the person recording, you know, trying to tell the story and report it out. It's pretty rare. I'm happy that I've kind of been on all these different sides of the coin, I guess, so to speak, um, because it really does help me kind of like focus the why of what I'm doing, what I'm doing and why it means so much for me to speak to people who are unhoused and get their stories out there. Then I hope that I can continue to tell them and, you know, through journalism, but also through other ways as well, you know, whatever reaches people's hearts and minds to kind of like make people just more aware to issues that are going on and related to homelessness. Yes, for sure. But then also like conversations about, you know, wage inequality and environmental racism and, you know, all of these other kind of things that are happening and that are all kind of playing a part in the homelessness crisis as well. Ethan, I'm really grateful for your reporting. Thank you for making the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. I really enjoyed talking to you. Ethan Ward reports on homelessness for KPCC and LAist. One more thing. I know this show talked about some tough stuff. If you or someone you love is having suicidal thoughts, there are people who can help. 
You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's at 1-800-273-TALK. Or you can text HELLO to 741-741. That's the crisis text line. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. We're getting a ton of help right now from Anna Rubinova and Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. Welcome to the week, everybody. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.